0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 13, Our Highest Expectations. On July 20th, 1840, a political candidate named Jesse Thomas stood before a crowd at Springfield's courthouse. Thomas was a square-faced attorney, former circuit judge, and a Democrat running against Abraham Lincoln for a seat in the Illinois House of Representatives. And he was angry. The Sangamo Journal, the local Whig newspaper, claimed that at a debate a few months earlier, the crowd listened raptly to Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, then ran for the exits when Thomas showed up. The newspaper ran anonymous letters, some penned by Lincoln, that tried to play up a split in the Democratic Party between supporters of President Martin Van Buren and his opponents. The men behind the Sangamo Journal then tried to pin the authorship of the letters on Thomas. In the words of the Democratic Illinois State Register, they aimed to, quote, render the judge obnoxious to the friends of Van Buren. So Thomas went before the crowd to make it clear. He hadn't written those letters. The Junto, a group of Whigs who included Lincoln, were the authors. In William Herndon's account, Thomas's speech reflected, quote, somewhat more on Lincoln than the rest. Word of Thomas's speech reached Lincoln in his nearby office. He made it over to the rally and went before the crowd just after Thomas finished. The exact words of Lincoln's response are lost its effect is not. Lincoln began with his usual rhetorical trick of pretending to be a humble man, answering a high and mighty personage. He went through Thomas's political history, which he detailed with astonishing recall. As he spoke, Lincoln started mocking Thomas's accent and his way of walking. The crowd egged Lincoln on, which led to ever crueler mimicry. Albert Bledsoe, Thomas's law partner and a witness to the speech, Later wrote, quote, His manner was easy, natural, and self possessed, and his language was simple, direct, and plain Anglo Saxon English, delivered in a conversational rather than an oratorical style and tone. But every word was a rail splitter. As Herndon later wrote, quote, The crowd yelled and cheered as he continued. Encouraged by these demonstrations, the ludicrous gestures of the speaker's performance gave way to intense, and scathing ridicule. Thomas, like every victim of a skinning, had to sit and watch. And it broke him. He started weeping in front of the assembly, then fled. Bledsoe, rather meanly, said that Thomas, quote, cried for the rest of the day, and that, quote, he came to our office for sympathy, and we should have sincerely pitied the poor fellow if every feeling of compassion had not been swallowed up in contempt. Bledsoe's uncharitable attitude toward his partner was a minority view. It was no surprise that the Democratic Register condemned Lincoln's, quote, rude assault upon the private character of Thomas. But even Lincoln's friends were shocked by what came to be known as the skinning of Thomas. David Davis, who was in the crowd, called the speech terrible. Samuel Parks, who was studying law in Springfield that year, wrote to William Herndon in 1866 that it, quote, is still spoken of by those who heard it as awfully severe. And Lincoln grew to regret the speech. Herndon later wrote, quote, I heard him afterwards say that the recollection of his conduct that evening filled him with the deepest chagrin. He felt that he had gone too far, and to rid his good nature of a load, hunted up Thomas and made ample apology. Lincoln's attack on Thomas was a microcosm of the man in 1840. The Whigs seemed close to a major breakthrough, and Lincoln campaigned hard for his party, mixing policy talk and personal ridicule with no thought of separating them. John Scott, an Illinois attorney, wrote that Lincoln had, quote, a style of speaking much admired in that day. Scott added Lincoln, quote, discussed the questions of the time in a logical way but much time was devoted to telling stories to illustrate some phase of his argument but more often the telling of these stories was resorted to for the purpose of rendering his opponents ridiculous this is the desperate lincoln of 1836 reemerging so determined to win he follows shameful paths whether it led to attacks on individuals or a race The Whigs' prospects were bright in 1840, thanks to the ongoing economic depression. After a brief recovery in 1838, British banks pulled back on credit in the fall of 1839, leading to bank closures and a collapse in prices. The Whigs sensed a chance and didn't want to blow it. They nominated William Henry Harrison for president in December 1839, a choice which pleased Lincoln. Harrison had been a good vote-getter four years earlier. In January, Lincoln wrote John Todd Stewart, who was serving in Congress, quote, A great many of the grocery sort of Van Buren men, as formerly, are out for Harrison. Our Irish blacksmith Gregory is for Harrison. I believe I may say that all our friends think the chance of carrying the state, very good. Lincoln was actively involved in Whig strategy. Like partisans throughout time, he couched the election in apocalyptic terms. The Illinois Whig Central Committee's plan of action, written in part by Lincoln, appealed to party members to work toward, quote, the glory of having contributed to the overthrow of the corrupt powers that now control our beloved country. It also attacked, quote, the trained bands that are opposed to us, whose salaried officers are ever on the watch, and whose misguided followers are ever ready to obey. Their smallest commands. For their part, the Democrats viewed the Whigs as a bunch of rich toadies. Throughout 1840, Stephen Douglas and Democratic politicians called the Whigs aristocrats, or, reaching back a few decades for insults, Federalists. In the General Assembly, Lincoln played defense. Illinois' legislature met in Springfield for the first time in 1839. The state capitol was not finished, so the Illinois House of Representatives convened in Springfield's Second Presbyterian Church. In the pews, Democrats continued to hammer the 1837 Internal Improvements Bill, which Lincoln championed, and related bills as wasteful and possibly corrupt spending. They called them infernal improvements. Lincoln tried to salvage the program. He defended the Illinois and Michigan Canal so critical to the future of Chicago, arguing that stopping work on it would be, quote, very much like stopping a skift in the middle of a river. If it was not going up, it would go down. The embankments upon the canal would be washing away, and the excavations filling up. In a later speech, Lincoln argued that, quote, after the immense debt we have incurred in carrying these works almost to completion, at least one work calculated to yield something towards defraying its expense should be finished and put into production. The General Assembly saved the Illinois and Michigan Canal, but killed the rest of the improvements. Lincoln also parried Democratic attacks on the Illinois State Bank, extending its life to the end of 1840. Lincoln, like most Whigs, supported banks. He believed their expansion of the money supply fueled prosperity. Democrats had specific issues with the Bank of Illinois, like the fact that out-of-state investors bought stock in the institution using Illinois farmers as a front. But generally, Democrats hated banks for their use of paper money, believing all financial transactions should be conducted in hard coin. In December 1839, Lincoln joined a public debate on reestablishing a national bank. It was held in the Springfield Courthouse, below Lincoln's office. Lincoln, along with Edward Baker and Usher Linder, who had now become a Whig, spoke on behalf of the bank. Stephen Douglas and two other Democrats spoke against it. This was no dry discussion of monetary policy. Near the end of the debate, Baker, speaking in the English accent that entranced people on the frontier, accused Democrats of graft. That caused John Weber, a Democrat in the audience, to yell, Pull him down! On hearing this, Lincoln, who had been listening to the debate through the trap door in the Stewart and Lincoln office above, decided to jump into the fray. Literally. He put his long legs through the opening, dropped out of the ceiling, and faced the audience. Then, grabbing a stone pitcher, Lincoln threatened to bring it down on the head of anyone who rushed the stage. On the first night of the debate, Lincoln was tasked with delivering the final argument after Douglas and another speaker. His remarks are lost, but the reporting and memories of his performance suggest Lincoln leaned heavily into personal attacks at the expense of policy. The Register, despite its Democratic bias, probably caught the drift of the evening when writing, quote, Mr. Lincoln will sometimes make his language correspond with his clownish manner, and he can thus frequently cause a loud laugh among his Whig hearers. But this entire game of buffoonery convinces the mind of no man, and is utterly lost on the majority of his hearers. Night number two, which featured Lincoln against Douglas, went even worse. It may have been at this debate that Douglas, as Lincoln later said, quote, indulged himself in a contemptuous expression of pity for me. He deeply resented this, but Lincoln knew he had not been effective. His friend Joseph Gillespie said, quote, Lincoln did not come up to the requirement of the occasion. He was conscious of his failure, and I never saw any man so much distressed. Lincoln was still smarting from Douglas's earlier performance when he delivered a second speech on banking on December 26th. The address showed the Democrat had gotten into Lincoln's head. Referring to his opponent fudging some federal spending numbers, whether deliberately or otherwise, Lincoln said, quote, I saw that he was stupid enough to hope that I would permit such groundless and audacious assertions to go unexposed. I readily consented that on the score of both of veracity or sagacity, the audience should judge whether he or I were more deserving of the world's contempt there is similar partisan sneering throughout the speech. At one point, Lincoln erupted into melodrama. Quote, I know that the great volcano at Washington, aroused and directed by the evil spirit that reigns there, is belching forth the lava of political corruption in a current broad and deep, which is sweeping with frightful velocity over the whole length and breadth of the land, bidding fair to leave unscathed no green spot or living thing, while on its bosom are riding like demons on the waves of hell, the imps of that evil spirit, and fiendishly taunting all those who dare resist its destroying course with the hopelessness of their effort. And knowing this, I cannot deny that all may be swept away. Broken by it, I too may be. Bow to it, I never will. But... After the lava cooled, Lincoln made a rock-solid case for a national bank. He noted that a Democratic-backed plan that would require payment of revenue in hard coin would yank money out of circulation at a time when the country needed capital to pull itself out of the Depression. Lincoln said, quote, "...when one hundred millions or more of the circulation we now have shall be withdrawn, who can contemplate, without terror, the distress, ruin, bankruptcy, and beggary that must follow. Lincoln also defended the utility of the Bank of the United States in creating a sound currency, something people could not take for granted in those days. He also defended the bank from charges of potential corruption and unconstitutionality. The Whigs turned the speech into a pamphlet and circulated it around the state for the 1840 elections. Lincoln later wrote to Stewart that it was a, quote, Big speech, and Joseph Gillespie said the address, quote, transcended our highest expectations. History often presents the 1840 campaign as the Whigs nominating a walking corpse and getting voters drunk enough to cheer a giant rolling ball. As in most elections, public events, and human interactions of the time, there was a lot of drinking. But there were fundamental ideological differences between Whigs and Democrats. The Whigs claimed, rather dubiously, that William Henry Harrison was born in a log cabin and pushed that wherever they could. A replica log cabin went up in Springfield. But they were equally committed to a central bank, high tariffs, and internal improvements to restore the economy. An April rally for the Whigs in McCoopin County, southwest of Springfield, featured a log cabin with, quote, the rich and beautiful colors floating in the air above the cabin, consisting of the flag, the Stars and Stripes, and a flag on which was inscribed in large capitals the words U.S. Bank. This was hailed as a token of better days and a pledge that the log cabin candidate would redeem our country from monetary oppression and currency distraction. Lincoln learned to present the Whig platform in a manner that audiences could appreciate. John Weber, the Democrat who started the booing at the bank debate, said, quote, Mr. Lincoln used to stagger me with his tariff speeches. He so arranged his facts, his arguments, his logic, that it approached me from such a peculiar angle that they struck me forcibly. Alongside logic, there was race baiting. As in 1836, The Whigs virtually screamed about Martin Van Buren's vote in 1821, extending suffrage to African Americans who met property requirements in New York State. An account of the vote appeared in an 1836 biography of Van Buren, and one of Lincoln's friends, William Fithian, wrote to the President of the United States asking if the account was correct. Van Buren, for some reason, wrote back and said, yes, it was. When Lincoln brought up Van Buren's vote at a rally where Douglas was present, Douglas denied it. Lincoln took out the biography and read the passage. Douglas called it a forgery. Lincoln then read Van Buren's letter to Fithian confirming the account, which caused Douglas to grab the book and hurl it into the audience. At an April rally in Carlinville, Lincoln spewed political sewage. He said Van Buren was, quote, clothed with the sable furs of Guinea, that is, quote, breath smells rank with devotion to the cause of Africa's sons, and said Van Buren's path, quote, might be followed by scattered bunches of N-word wool. As in 1836, Lincoln utterly disgraced himself. The state elections in August proved a disappointment to Illinois Whigs. The Democrats widened their margins in the General Assembly. Lincoln won a fourth term in the House, but barely made the cut of those elected. A division of Sangamon County the previous year probably hurt his vote totals. The outcome distressed Illinois Whigs. In an era before public opinion polls, summer elections served as gauges of the electorate. Fearing trouble in the presidential election in November, Lincoln went to southern Illinois to campaign for the Harrison ticket. During this trip, he may have begun a serious correspondence with a woman he had met in Springfield the year before. Here, Mary Todd enters the story. This young woman, just twenty-one in mid-1840, provoked strong reactions in her time and continues to do so. William Herndon and many early Lincoln biographers viewed Mary as a selfish harridan who tormented her husband. Now. There were equally strong counterarguments from people like Henry Rankin, who knew the Lincolns as a young attorney, and stressed Mary's better qualities, including her charm and her learning. This polarization continues today. You have historians like Jean Baker and Catherine Clinton, who treat Mary in a clear-eyed but sympathetic manner. And you have historians like Michael Burlingame, who see Mary as an abusive grifter. But there are a few things we can say with certainty about Mary Todd. First and foremost, she was an incredibly intelligent person. Todd was far more educated than her future husband, and, indeed, most Americans of the day. She could speak fluent French, and she could speak it with a Parisian accent that impressed at least one Gallic visitor. Henry Rankin wrote that he once brought Mary a copy of the French novelist Victor Hugo's speech defending his son, against a murder charge. The address had been translated for the Southern Literary Messenger, a literary magazine published in Richmond, Virginia. Noting, quote, the difficulty of translating into English, a French oration of such intense feeling so as to preserve the true Hugo fire and force, Mary requested a copy of the speech in its original language, which Rankin received two months later. As Rankin recalled, quote, I took it at once to her, Taking with me also the Paris Correspondence translation in the Southern Literary Messenger, so that I might follow the thought while she read the speech as delivered in French. I hoped that she would read it aloud, which she did, stopping often to compare the translation with the original. She read with such clearness and dramatic fervor, and translated with such sympathy that instead of following the English translation, I could only sit entranced by the force and effect of her tones as she translated, or at times read Hugo's inspiring oration in his native language. Second, Mary, in her youth at least, had a real sense of humor. It was different than her husband's, which tended toward the absurd. Mary's was ironic, and it could drift toward cruelty. Rankin wrote, quote, Without intending to wound, she sometimes indulged in sarcastic or witty remarks. At times of deep feeling, her words might bring keen pain to persons toward whom she felt kindly. But Mary's humor could also quietly mock convention. Mary and a friend once tried to escape their cabin fever by walking through Springfield, putting boards in front of them to navigate the muddy streets. When the two young women realized they would have to do the same thing to get back to their lodgings, Mary, in a simple but unladylike manner, jumped into a passing cart. Third, Mary was high-strung. She spoke in a rapid-fire Kentucky accent, and she had a constant fear of thunder and burglars, sometimes asking neighbors to stay in her house when Abraham was away. Mary Todd's childhood constantly tested her fight-or-flight reflexes. She was born on December 12, 1818, in Lexington, Kentucky, to Robert Todd and Eliza Parker. Robert Todd was a college-educated merchant and a rising star in politics, who, like many merchants, suffered periodic credit crunches. Robert often turned to his wife's mother, Elizabeth Parker, for help. Eliza, according to historian Catherine Clinton, was a, quote, sprightly, attractive girl with a sunny disposition. Mary's world was far removed from her future husband's. The family was upper class and well-connected, and Robert Todd's occasional business struggles never pulled the family downward. Henry Clay was a neighbor and political mentor to Robert Todd. The Todds were also slaveholders. Catherine Helm, a niece of Mary's who later wrote a biography of her, suggested Mary was close to some of the slaves, but paints them in such stereotypical terms that much of it seems like lace draped over chains we certainly have nothing from those held against their will by the tods though helm claimed that one todd slave named mammy quietly assisted runaway slaves helm quotes one of mary's friends quote, mary and i wondered if mammy wanted to be free we concluded she did not how could we do without mammy and how could she exist without us it would just about kill her to give up bossing her white chillin this says more about the self-delusion of whites than it does the woman held in bondage. In 1825, Eliza died after giving birth to her seventh child. Mary was just six years old, and like Abraham, endured the pain of losing a mother young. A year later, her father married a woman named Elizabeth Humphreys, known as Betsy. This proved another contrast with the Lincolns. Where Sarah Bush and her children blended with Thomas Lincoln and his brood easily, the Todd family dynamics can only be described as Byzantine, with suspicion and hostility running through the household. Robert Todd was frequently absent and expected Betsy to raise his six children and bear him more. Betsy would experience nine pregnancies in the next 15 years. Eliza's mother Elizabeth, who was close to Mary, Hated how quickly her daughter had been replaced. As Catherine Clinton wrote, The looming and disapproving presence of the imperious Elizabeth Parker may have dampened Betsy's enthusiasm for the role of surrogate mother. Mrs. Parker deeply resented any interference with the Todd children, and antagonism developed, especially with Mrs. Parker living next door. Parker's money had purchased the Todd home, and several of the servants who remained in the Todd household felt loyalty to Mrs. Parker a difficult situation for all three generations. In addition, Betsy was frequently sick and got almost no help from her husband. She often lashed out at her stepchildren, who, to be fair, could antagonize Betsy with little provocation. When she was 12, Mary once put salt in Betsy's coffee. The older woman yelled that Mary was, quote, a limb of Satan, loping down the broad road leading to destruction. The phrase, Satan's limb, became an inside joke among the first set of Todd children. Mary had eight half-brothers and sisters who lived to adulthood, but the relations between Eliza and Betsy's children were rarely easy. Mary's frustrations, and perhaps loneliness, often boiled over into bursts of anger. Charles Strozier writes, Mary's situation intensified her willfulness and tendency to tantrums. In confused expressions of undirected rage, she seemingly cried out for support, love, and nurturing from her father, her missing mother, and anyone else who might help her. Her calls went largely unheeded. Perhaps this isolation sparked Mary's creativity. When she was ten, Mary took willow branches and fashioned them into hoops for her dress, in the style of the time, to make her look more adult. Mary also once rode a pony to Henry Clay's estate simply to show it off, which amused the great compromiser. Mary also proved an excellent student. The Todds had long valued education. Robert Todd knew of the writings of Mary Wollstonecraft, the English writer who, in the 1790s, insisted that women had a right to an education. Mary Todd learned French in a boarding school run by Augustus and Charlotte Mentel refugees from the Reign of Terror during the French Revolution, who, it was said, wept at the mention of King Louis Sixteenth. She later went to a finishing school, emerging with a deep understanding of literature and fluency in French. Yet, as Jean Baker writes, the purpose of this education was not to elevate Mary, but to make her entertaining, and prepare her to raise the Republic's sons. As Baker writes, quote, Women would not be called upon to lead armies or execute laws, but as the headmistress of a distinguished female seminary in Maryland explained, they would be called upon to preside over the domestic circle, to regulate family's wisdom, and to guide and enlighten the youthful. Mary's superb education, which would have given a man endless opportunities, had one goal—to make her a pleasing wife. Mary's older sister Elizabeth married Lincoln's political ally Ninian Edwards in 1832. As we've mentioned, their hilltop mansion became a meeting place for young single people in Springfield. It also became a way for the older Todd daughters to escape the tension in their crowded home. Frances Todd, another sister, moved in with the Edwards in 1836. They immediately went about looking for a match for her. Frances married William Wallace, a local doctor, in 1839. With one sister hitched, Elizabeth decided to do it again. Mary arrived in Springfield in the fall of 1839. She quickly became a sought-after companion. Mary was an attractive young woman, short with blue eyes and curls around her face. She was also a charming and intelligent conversationalist. Ninian Edwards later said the young Mary could, quote, make a bishop forget his prayers. Strozier writes that Mary's letters, quote, seem to burst from the page, adding, quote, the sentences run on with few paragraph breaks, but with occasional dashes. Indiscriminate underlining gives a feeling of exaggerated drama. It's not known for certain how Mary and Abraham first met. In fact, almost nothing can be said for certain about their relationship until the morning in 1842 when Mary told her sister they planned to marry. It's possible they first saw each other at the Edwards House, perhaps at a December 1839 reception for state legislators. One family story claimed that Mary said Lincoln told her, quote, Miss Todd, I want to dance with you in the worst possible way. And, Mary said, he did. Mary and Abraham had stark differences in their backgrounds. Mary loved pomp and powder, in the words of her sister Elizabeth and she cared much more about social graces. Mary could navigate the give and take of a conversation. Abraham, Herndon would later write, had a need to dominate discussions and get the attention of an audience. Lincoln tried to keep his emotions in check. Mary did not. As Henry Rankin later wrote, Her face was always an unerring index and reflection of her passing emotions, even if she had not expressed them in words. But they had much in common. One was John Todd Stewart, Abraham's law partner and a cousin of Mary's. Mary and Abraham were both ambitious in their particular ways, Abraham for office, Mary for social renown. They both loved poetry. Mary may have been one of the few people in Springfield who could speak at length with Abraham about Shakespeare and Robert Burns. They were both passionate Whigs, and Mary's stories of dining with Henry Clay must have dazzled Abraham. Elizabeth Edwards said, I have happened in the room where they were sitting often, and often Mary led the conversation. Lincoln would listen and gaze on her as if drawn by some superior power, irresistibly so. He listened. Never scarcely said a word. But, It's hard to know how much courting actually took place in 1840. Lincoln was frequently gone from Springfield, and Mary herself would take trips away from the city. Joshua Speed later said that Lincoln, quote, first wrote his Mary while campaigning in southern Illinois that year. That's led Michael Burlingame to speculate their courtship took place through letters. If that's the case, though, these letters are lost. But it's possible Lincoln felt more confident about his ability to provide for Mary Todd than he did for Mary Owens. His law practice was busy, and if the Whigs took Illinois in the presidential election, he would be in line for a federal job, perhaps a high salaried position in a land office. Historians traditionally believed that Abraham and Mary came to an understanding in late 1840 but there's no direct evidence for this either in their letters or the correspondence of others that year mary and abraham were likely involved with each other but lincoln was one suitor among many courting the young woman joshua speed and the edwards believed they were engaged but this seems an inference from events at the end of the year that we'll discuss next week the situation resembles abraham lincoln and ann rutledge's relationship where lincoln's reaction to rutledge's death led people to see things that may or may not have been there. As we'll see, Lincoln himself may have misjudged where he stood with Mary Todd. Abraham Lincoln must have entered November of 1840 in high spirits. He was involved with a charming young woman from a wealthy family. He had managed to save the state bank earlier in the year, and he had become a leading champion of the Whig cause in Illinois. Lincoln was set to serve as an elector for William Henry Harrison. So it must have been particularly disappointing when Harrison, who romped a victory over Van Buren, lost Illinois by just under 2,000 votes, out of more than 93,000 cast. Voter participation wasn't a problem. 1840 was a record year for turnout, with more than 80% of eligible voters casting ballots. The Whigs' vote totals soared in Illinois. According to historian Michael Holt, the Whigs got almost 16,000 more votes in the state than they did in 1838. The problem, for the Whigs, was that the majority Democrats got 17,000 more. The Sangamo Journal, trying to put the best spin on it, wrote on November 20th quote, The increase of the Van Buren vote, it will appear, is generally in those counties where there was no contest in August. In the counties where the election was contested strictly on party ground, with few exceptions, the Whigs have made great and surprising gains. Some Whigs later blamed voting by Irish immigrants for providing Van Buren's margin of victory. But it's also possible their commercial platform couldn't command a majority in what was still a rural, pioneer state. But even without Illinois, the Whigs would take over the federal government. Lincoln, from one account, was in high spirits at a Whig victory celebration, telling all the jokes he could and playing leapfrog with his colleagues. This kind of brash, exuberant behavior had defined his year. In less than a month, his mind would swing rapidly and dangerously toward another pole. Abraham Lincoln was about to have a nervous breakdown. Next time, we'll talk about the personal and professional challenges that unfolded at the end of 1840 that led the 31-year-old politician into a major emotional crisis. We'll also discuss the treatments that worsened it and the friends who helped him recover.